Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Today we have another special episode. We'll be listening to a previously recorded and streamed panel discussion, part two of Politics, Policy, and Power, a roundtable discussion on BIPOC liberation and policymaking. Our panelists will introduce themselves in the clip and just two quick notes. This panel was co-sponsored by The Uptake and Voices for Racial Justice as part of the Quilt Partnership. And just a reminder that the views expressed in this episode are not representative of WFNU. Here's that clip now. All right, everybody, welcome to Politics, Policy, and Power, a roundtable discussion on BIPOC liberation and policymaking. My name is Serene Saade. I'm one of your hosts for this event. Um, thank you all for joining us for the second of this two-part meeting. Um, today's conversation is about racial equity in policy and politics through a discussion of specific work and specific legislation. So last week was a more gen uh, general conversation around racial equity in city government and at the legislature, and today we're being a little bit more specific. Um, some of the questions we're thinking about today, what is working, what's not, what we, should we be paying attention to? What is different this year um, and about this session? What's exciting? Um, and within the context of the racial justice discussions happening, how are your issues connected? Um, this is a really exciting conversation. It's being streamed, it's being recorded. Uh, we're so grateful for each of our guests. I'm gonna leave it to our other co-hosts for um, introductions and we'll have some Q&A at the end. Thank you for joining us. Hello, I am Julia Freeman. I am the community, oh no, I am the <laughs> director of community engagement at Voices for Racial Justice. Pronouns she, her, hers. I'm excited for this conversation today. Hello, everybody. My name is Monica Hurtado. I'm the community health organizer for Voices for Racial Justice. I use she, her, hers pronouns and happy to be here today. Hello everyone, my name is Brett Grant, he, him, his pronouns, and I'm Research and Policy Director of Voices for Racial Justice. Okay, so we are very excited to have you all here today. Uh, uh, thank you for the patience uh, to the audience who wait a few minutes before we were able to start. And with that, let's start with the amazing panelists we have today. So Nevada uh, Little Wolf, welcome to be with us today. We would love uh, you to introduce yourself and, and after that, if you can talk to us about the page amendment and this work you have been doing. And we have heard about some controversies around, around it and how a, your experiences in life have made you able to navigate those controversies would be something that we would love to hear from you. Miigwech, thank you, Monica. Um, my name is Nevada Little Wolf. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a citizen of Leech Lake Nation, um, also a citizen of Minnesota. I am the Our Children Minnesota and Page Amendment Executive Director and Campaign Manager um, so I'll be talking a bit about that. I'm also a mother of two children. Um, my daughter has a disability. She has Down syndrome and she's a student here in Minneapolis um, public schools at Roosevelt High School. Uh, I really, I bring decades of work experience with me in working with community across Minnesota, both rural, urban and tribal communities. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about those experiences and how it informs, it informs the work that I'm doing right now. Um, so the Page Amendment is a constitutional amendment to Minnesota's um, state constitution. And 
we're really looking at the education provision in the state constitution that was written in 1857, um, established a long time ago, uh, not really with our communities in mind. I mean, this was during a time that slavery was still legal in parts of our country. Um, it's also the year of the Dred Scott case. And when we think about the formation of Minnesota as a state and its long history related to um, racial inequity and its foundation, we have to as well as low-income children. And we haven't been improving those, those disparities even after decades of, of trying to do that. So when we look at the Page Amendment and think about the highest, the highest governing document in our land in, in Minnesota um, and how we're, we're centering our values in education, what we're proposing is a shift because right now the current constitution says that we need to have a uniform system of public schools. So again, like it's very, very focused on a system and, and not really on people. And so right now the current um, language also establishes that we have um, a standard of education that is adequate for students in Minnesota. So some students can perform well and some students can fail and that's considered adequate in the state of Minnesota, it meets that standard. Our proposal is really saying that we would have, um, we're not gonna focus on the system, we would focus on that equal right uh, to quality public education for children, essentially um, setting a civil right for children to receive quality public education in Minnesota. And, and again, like not focusing, like focusing on people, right? Like what are people, what are children's needs when they go into education and how can those needs be met to make sure that they have access to that quality public education. So, you know, today we, we had a hearing in the Education Policy Committee. Um, it was an informational hearing, which was a really great first step this legis legislative session to really get the word out around the Page Amendment. Um, I think we're, you know, talking about like what, um, you know, in, in this hearing, we were able to hear both the pro argument around the page amendment, as well as uh, testimony around from folks who have questions or concerns about the page amendment. So this is really like a great avenue to kind of start talking about like what, what you're saying. I think Monica around controversies is like, I'm not sure if I would characterize it the same way, but I think um, understanding what other people are thinking about it and what they might, might have questions or concerns about. So, um, you know, we continue to engage community voices in this and we continue to have an open door around understanding what people may, um, you know, may be wondering, like, how does this impact me? Um, you know, the Page Amendment, like there, there is a group of people who are like, well, is it going to take away my education rights to choose to homeschool my children or to, to um, have my children go to, to private school. And absolutely it does not because it is protected in federal law. And so I would say that a lot of the controversies, if you will, have to do with just like not really understanding the Page Amendment. And we continue to just get out, center those voices and make sure that people have access to um, the information and, and to answer those questions. I would note that like today, I mean, we, we really, you know, understand as we're engaging community voices into um, these policy conversations where it's not comfortable necessarily for some community members to join a public hearing. Um, sometimes we have access to technology, like we started the Facebook this just now and, and we had a little bit of glitches happening and we got it going. But I think for average folks who are like working um, they're taking care of their children. They might have technology issues. Like, they're sometimes it's really hard to get into these spaces where policy decisions are being made. And I think continuing to have the conversations around how do we have access for folks to like really have their voices amplified 
And that is just something that has been center to me like for a very long time being, uh, you know, an indigenous woman and really having to work like 1000 times harder to get into spaces to make sure that uh, my community's issues are, are being lifted up and that our voices and our, our knowledge is, is being centered in that. And so, you know, as the leader of this campaign, I'm really just working to make sure that we have um, spaces and places for community voices to be heard. And on March 22nd, we're going to start our week of action around page amendment, which will really kick off with um, youth voices will be centered as a part of this, like community voices will be centered as a part of this. We're going to have artists engaged in this process around talking about the page amendment um, and what it means. And I would just say that this is really um, you know, I think thinking about what, like one of the controversies, I guess I will say is like, people are like, well, we don't know what will happen if the page amendment um, passes. The thing is, is that we need to have community voices engaged in this process with the legislature to help define like what that is gonna look like in the future. And one thing I know is that for my community and other communities, we, we definitely know what quality education does not look like. Um, when we don't have graduation rates, we're not ready for college, um, and those disparities are not getting better. In many cases, they're getting worse, especially with COVID-19. Um, COVID so the framework, and, and again, this is kind of where we have this like deficit-based way of talking about things. Like we really wanna shift that to more of an asset-based way of talking about things and center our community voices around what we what we know quality education can look like and what that will mean in terms of an impact. Everything uh, that we have, like, I think is really great. We, we have data and research with the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis that have come in um, to be a partner on this and to really help us understand the issues around sort of economic outcomes and other outcomes in the state of Minnesota that that help um, drive the Page Amendment forward and bring more voices in. I'll just say, you know, we have the, we have tribes in Minnesota, we have um, rural community members, we have urban community members, we have um, the business community and teachers and parents and students and organizations and individuals that are behind this. And I think that um, that's really how you, I think get, you know, get your movement going is like making sure that you're bringing voices to the, the table and that you're, um, you're, you're building power together. And you know, I think, um, you know, I think that we have to be a part of defining that policy, right? Like we have to be the ones defining the policy and not have other people defining it for us. Thank you, Nevada. Uh, and with that, CD. Right. Um, thank you, Nevada, for that answer. Um, next one is for Tomei. Um, first, if you could start with another introduction uh, for those just turning, tuning in for the first time today. And then uh, given your work developing a political action committee, MIPAC, how does politics impact and inform the community and policy work that you do? How have you seen electoral organizing impact policy organizing? What expectations does electoral organizing set for policy organizing? And what lessons can we take from electoral organizing that we can then apply to policy organizing? Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for um, having me back on the panel. Um, I feel really honored to be part of this conversation and to be able to share the experiences of with working with uh, my PAC. Um, so it's spelled behind me and it's M-A-I-V. That's the Hmong spelling of, of the word my and PAC is uh, Political Action Committee. So uh, my name is Taomei Shang and I use uh, she, her, hers pronouns. Um, I uh, am a co-founder and co-chair of my PAC. Uh, we were founded in 2016. And uh, during the day, I work for uh, Mayor Melvin Carter uh, in the city of St. Paul. I'm the director of intergovernmental relations. Um, I have, since 2009, I've been lobbying at the state capitol. And uh, as you can imagine, the racial demographics 
uh, has changed significantly significantly from 2009 until now in terms of the makeup of the legis legislature. And then in terms of organizers and lobbyists at the legislature, it's also changed significantly. So um, I'm really excited to be here to talk about the intersection between uh, political organizing and policy organizing. Um, my PAC was created by a group of 11 Hmong American women uh, who are based here in Minnesota. And um, all of us has and had different intersections and experiences with policy and politics. Uh, and then some were just interested and wanted to know like how could they become politically engaged. And so the women created um, the PAC to be able to have a vehicle for political activism outside of working on specific individual campaigns. And so what the PAC does is that we pull together our network, our social network to raise money to um, uh, support candidates who reflect our values of gender equity, racial justice and immigrant rights. And um, we are nonpartisan, but many of our values actually align very closely with um, one particular par party versus the other. Um, however, we have endorsed different kinds of political parties. Um, and I say that because I think these values should run across uh, party lines. Um, they're not specific to one party. Um, unfortunately, I think we're perceived to be aligned with uh, one more than the other. Um, but in terms of how um, the PAC is really instrumental to shaping policy is that the PAC is really about um, building relationships with uh, policymakers prior to their election or during uh, their campaign. And um, it's been a really great way to build a relationship outside of wanting something from an elected official. Um, you know, our former state Senator Jeff Heaton here, I'm pretty sure he often feels like people only go to him when they want something. But as a PAC, we're actually saying, um, hey, what can we do for you? Um, and so we bring both uh, financial resources as well as um, campaigning skills. So, um, and a few of our campaigns in 2018, we actually helped a lot of candidates who had really diverse um, constituents and they didn't have the language capacity. So our uh, base of supporters in the PAC um, actually provided the language um, translation and also interpretation for the candidate um, at no cost. So you can imagine this was a huge benefit. And we did uh, door knocking on the weekends in these communities where they had, um, you know, locks of actually just among uh, neighbors and residents. And so, um, and not only do we work with Hmong American uh, constituents, but other Asian Americans. And so for us, the PAC is just a way to actually create a different dynamic between uh, the future policy, future policymaker and constituents. And so it's about building a relationship in a different way than going to than meeting for the first time at the legislature. And then by the time we they get to the legislature, they already understand what our priorities are and what we care about. And so there isn't this us trying to explain and describe to the legislator who we are, why we're important and why they should talk to us. And then also why the issues that we care about, we want them to support it. And so um, that relationship building piece is really instrumental in creating a different dynamic for the relationship and for the uh, connection is really important. I'd be living that muted life. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I want off, to... but I think it would really take us off our time. So in, yes. in honor of my other colleagues, I think I let others go. I was giving you a, a glowing thank you. <laughs> and I was saying, uh, Marco, you gave us such an amazing uh, a preview of this last week. So I want to um, follow up with that and have you introduce yourself and then please go on and tell us a little bit more about your in-depth um, environmental impact legislation that you will work on and how it ties back to your story, experiencing environmental discrimination in Richmond, California, and the work to stop concentration of, of pollution in BIPOC communities. So can you take it away? And we can't wait to hear part two of that story. 
For sure. No, no problem, Julia. And thank you all for having me here for the second part of the panel. And so again, my name is Marco Hernandez. I use he, they pronouns. And I'm the public policy director here at Copal, Minnesota. And just like Julia said, I do come from, uh, my home is the East Bay, where my heart belongs, in Richmond, California. And um, like I said last week, uh, Richmond, um, it's, even though it's the city of pride and purpose, it's also home to the uh, second biggest refinery in the state of California, which is the Chevron refinery. And after talking last week, I, and also just usually every time that I talk about this, like I always reflect um, back uh, before I was, uh, I'm not going to say like I'm well-traveled because I'm not, but um, for a lot of people that aren't able to travel outside Richmond or the East Bay, um, and like also my time before college and coming here to St. Paul is that in Richmond, it's, and it also probably in other places that are like these too, it sort of feels like uh, it's normal. It, it's normal to live in a community that's really polluted um, and just trash and not having that many resources, especially if you do come from a uh, immigrant or BIPOC community. And growing up, I didn't question it. I was just like, oh, like, well, Richmond is predominantly Black uh, and Latino, uh, pr predominantly uh, Mexican immigrant community. And just like, um, you know, thinking that this was normal and just because we didn't have money like this, these are the cards that we are dealt with. Um, and there's nothing much that we're able to do. And, you know, growing up in, uh, in elementary school, um, you're always you're always able to see the refinery everywhere you go. It's literally on five different hills uh, facing the west side on um, in Richmond. And so I remember when I was little, I was like, um, you know, looking at the smokestacks, like that's where clouds come from. That's literally where our rain uh, comes from is from these smokestacks. And uh, it would literally go over um, our elementary school and block out the sun. And uh, again, never had any second guess, second thoughts. Um, and then when I go outside, say to like Berkeley, Piedmont, Lafayette, Marin, Orinda, um, you see that they're a these cities and towns are accompanied by a lot of trees, nature, um, and breathable air, and like really nice houses. And I'm just like, okay, like, yeah, this is also normal as well, uh, because you have more wider affluential communities. And when they're the wider the community, the better looking it is. And that's how just like as a young person of color living in America, that's just how we're programmed to be that um, just this country and this world being black and white and never really looking at, okay, what are um, uh, the different policies and the historical discrimination that brought us to this? And so, you know, going to college, I've never saw at Richmond as an environmental justice community or myself having that potential being an environmental justice organizer. Every time that I thought about uh, environmentalism, it's always just big green orgs that are led by uh, the white community. And it's always going back to uh, protecting nature, um, protecting animals. And I remember back in my high school, we tended to focus on that. And the Bay Area is a huge watershed. And so I would, used to use extracurricular activities um, to talk about uh, the watershed, um, how when it rains, just like the effects of pollution um, in our local rivers. And that has a lot to do with um, go rain going past into our communities and just picking up trash and going into waterways that leads into the bay and um, thinking like, oh, okay, like that's that's just like where we live and it's unfortunate and we can't do much about it. And it wasn't until I started to get more involved in Copal, I started to uh, take classes in American studies uh, and environmental studies when I started to learn about environmental justice and literally uh, something that was started by communities of color as well. And so I just wanna revisit, um, well, not revisit, visit the principles of environmental justice. Um, and I've learned this just last year and this should definitely be something on people's radars, which uh, the um, uh, principles of environmental justice were created by delegates to the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit back in October 1991 in Washington, D.C. 
and they adopted 17 principles of environmental justice. And since then, these principles have served as a defining document for the growing grassroots movements for environmental justice. Environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth, ecological unity, and the interdependences of all species and the rights to be free from ecological destruction, demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all people, free from any form of discrimination and bias, mandates uh, the right to ethical balance and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interest of sustainable planet for humans and other living beings and affirms the fundamental rights to political, economic, cultural, and environmental self-determination of all peoples. And it demands the right to participate as equal partners at every level of decision-making, including needs assessment, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. And there's, uh, there's 12 more um, principles that are there, but I'm not going to read all of them for the sake of time. Um, but definitely that last part goes into the cumulative impacts My bill. My bad, that was Siri. Uh, we'll lead into the cumulative impacts bill. And so a little information about that, it's uh, House File 168. Uh, the chief author is Representative Fu Lee and Senate File 186. And the chief author is Senator Bobby Joe Champion. And so I'll just read out that uh, our cumulative impacts bill clarifies that the permit applicants or the person that uh, would potentially own this pollutant emitting facility and wants to put it in an environmental justice area must indicate whether uh, uh, this permit impacts an environmental justice area, although the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency has a final say on that question and on the boundaries of environmental justice area. And also uh, has an appeal process uh, petition for residents who believe that they meet the definition it also clarifies that the applicant must reimburse the agency for doing this cumulative impacts analysis. And it also includes a new definition of an environmental justice area that includes 40% of that community being uh, a community of color, as well as 35% um, or more of the households have an income at or below 200% of the federal poverty poverty level, 40% or more of the population over the age of five have limited English proficiency. And that's something new because um, none of the environmental justice definitions include something like that as well. And so I see that that's all the time that I have, but that's mostly what the bill is. And so really excited to answer any questions uh, in the future if people have any, but I'll pass it off to the next person. Yeah, thanks so much, Marco. Um, Listening to you really feels like a good segue into some of the work that uh, Jeff is working on. Uh, we're here with Jeff Hayden, and um, I'll ask Jeff to introduce himself and his pronouns before answering this question. You know, a number of uh, organizations, including the Center for Economic Inclusion, Voices for Racial Justice, we're reviving some work you did in 2016 around creating racial equity impact notes at the legislature. Can you explain what a racial equity impact note is and how it makes the process of policymaking more racially equitable? And are there any specific practices we should keep in mind when working on this policy? Well, thank you, Brett. Uh, good afternoon, good to see you guys. Uh, as Brett said, my name is Jeff Hayden. Uh, he, him, and his is my pronouns. Um, I am really glad to be here. I was glad to listen to Marco and Nevada and Talmay uh, talk about this issue because there's some varying degree of what they talked about really uh, is what the racial equity impact note is all about. Each and every one of them spoke about being a part of the process being participatory in public policy and that the communities that they represent are, are, are in that. I think of Marco, his uh, talk about being from Richtown. If he knows if I say that, then I must know a little bit about the Bay Area. And I think Brett uh, knows well. I went to high school in San Francisco, uh, went to high school and college there. My mother still lives right in the heart of San Francisco, one of the last African-American folks open here to be quite frank with yourself. You wanna study gentrification, you should study San Francisco uh, and then the migration patterns to, 
to the North Bay, Richmond and Vallejo, and then east to Antioch and, and those places of where my friends live now. But anyways, uh, I was reminded about a month ago, I was going uh, to a funeral from San Francisco to Sacramento and you ride uh, up Highway 80 directly through Richmond and see that big refinery there. And can remember a couple of years ago when they had the big fire and just how much uh, that harmed the community. And so um, I just wanted to make that acknowledgement uh, but anyways, the racial impact note, what it essentially does is think about in the legislature when you have what they call a fiscal note. All that that simply means is that you pose a piece of legislation, there's a cost to it, you request that information independently from the department and now the legislative budget office, and they come back and they say, Jeff, you want to build a homeless shelter or an organization wants to build one, uh, you know, they need money from the state. State, they said it cost this much. State took a look at it and said, here's what it cost. So when we're doing this work, it's really important to know what things cost. So the state knows what their budget is and if it has an impact on them. Um, and so that's really, really, really important. And so the, the racial impact note, sorry guys, I know my camera's a little fidgety, so I'm trying to fix it. At any rate, um, the racial impact note has a similar concept. It just says, if you're gonna have a proposed a bill, change a law, ask for money, uh, whatever it is, that you would then ask for a racial impact note to see what impact it has, good and or bad, a disparate uh, problem in communities of color or no impact, or it's gonna have a positive impact. And so, you know, we could get into kind of like how it all would work and we're still working that out. But think of it like this, we all know the story of I-94 going through the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul. It's it's a nationwide, actually they're doing some work on it. You're hearing about reconnect Rondo and the land bridge. It's a, it's, a, it's a client that I'm helping think about this, but everybody knows that story. And that story happened all around uh, the world, but let's just use Rondo. Thriving black African-American neighborhood, uh, working class, poor, working class, middle class, even upper middle class, doctors, lawyers, store owners, accountants, you know, working class folk, folk that's trying to get out of out of poverty. Uh, someone decided, government decided that they were going to connect downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul together. And they thought that'd be a good idea for commerce and then on, you know, into the interstate highway system. And they thought that that was really important. And so then when they said they wanted to do that and we were building and it was good for jobs, it was good for commerce and it's you know, this is how America, uh, you know, becomes a leader in the world, transportation and logistics. Question was, where the freeway gonna go? So yeah, as you can quite, quite imagine, you know, they're trying to figure out the route and the route they settled on was the black community. That's where the freeway is gonna go. It's gonna go run right through the heart of the black community. It's gonna displace them, send them somewhere else, take those businesses away, uh, take those uh, houses away, uh, but better yet, take that community away. Take those people who lived by each other, with each other, knew each other, watched each other's children, uh, loved on them, uh, disciplined them if they needed to be disciplined, walked uh, walked with them to school, make sure nobody bothers them. Better yet, if they were going to go to college, help write that college application or help them understand it. You know, I think we talk about this, but we don't understand real community. And it's more than just money in the houses. We talk about it because that's the eye-opening issue. But what's really big is the, the sense of community, who we are. So my, my folks uh, have been around here a long time. My father's been here since the late 50s. And my mother's family's been here since almost the turn of the century, about 1910. So my family, I've heard those stories around the table, uh, what the community looked like in Minneapolis and St. Paul before 35W and 94, uh, and how everybody knew each other and the wealth that was generated there. So back to the bill, the idea would be if they had this then they could say, you know what, let's do a racial impact note. And come back and say, you're gonna take $150 billion worth of equity away from this community. You're gonna displace communities, you're gonna break up families, and you're gonna tear the black middle class, the heart of the black middle class out of St. Paul. What do you guys wanna do, legislature? Then the legislature could say, yep, it's exactly what we wanna do. For the sake of interstate commerce and transportation, we want to do it. We're going to tear the heart out of the Black community in St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, and other places. 
I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but you get where I'm going. The idea, and we can talk about this on criminal justice reform. Nevada's talking about, you know, education, uh, Marco's environmental justice. Kalme has really articulated how she's bringing uh, the Southeast Asian Hmong community together to understand, kind of to put their political power and money together to make sure that they have the, the right representation. And by the way, we had a historic number of not only people of color, but a historic amount of, about a Hmong uh, folk in the in the in the legislature too. And that's and that's 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 designed. That's good. That's a good thing. That means that that community's voice is being heard and they're strengthening all of us through their actions. I work really closely with my friends over there. But the idea is that we would do that and hopefully not make those mistakes, have that impact, much like we do an environmental impact assessment, you know, on the land and water, much like we do a fiscal note, we're, we're doing that. So we're coming together. It was an idea that Representative Keeson, um, former leader Keeson, now Justice Keeson and I, uh, had and we just put it out there for people to chew on it. Uh, we know that there is some traction now. People around the country are thinking about it. They're doing some work in St. Paul in a little bit of a way and doing some work in Seattle. But we think this time has come for us to really start to have this question, not let the barriers get in the way, not let the money get in the way, but really have a conversation with legislators to talk about this with the administration. And with that being said, um, there's no, we, we we don't recruit for culturally uh, um, I'll be careful here, but I would just say that we're not recruiting at the legislative budget office and we're asking them on the resume, are they culturally competent? That doesn't mean that those folks aren't, because I don't know them, but we're really recruiting because they have analytic skills and economy, they're economists and they're uh, CPAs and, and they really kind of know how to quantify. So we're going to quantify a bill. So we're going to have to work with, <coughs> excuse me, with the legislature as we uh, continue to, to kind of get this over uh, the hill to say who do, who in community, and that's where voices and their legendary work on their report card and their, and their racial equity scorecard and other BIPOC or people of color-led organizations to help kind of bring in that cultural competency so that we can have the right folks and we can institutionalize that the same way we have in Congress and the CBO, we have the LBO and all of these uh, uh, divisions uh, have people that will do that. So we don't, today, we just so kind of landing in the legislative budget, budget office because it's, it's kind of new and there's not infrastructure. It could land in human rights. It could be its own uh, organization in of itself when it's all said and done. But we think that this is helpful. We think moving forward, we can hope not make the historic injustices that we have before. Or if we did, we can't use the excuse that we didn't know what the damage was going to be. And so we can move forward with this. We can say, here's what it looks like. Here's what's happening. And legislators, you know, we believe legislators have the right. Uh, we're not going to mandate anything, but they have the right to them. Once they got the information, then they hopefully can make good, you know, good decisions. And community can see and have a guide to see who's fighting for them. So as they go back to the ballot box and as they make decisions on how they interact, there's something tangible. They can't say, well, Jeff, you just do it, or I didn't realize that was happening. You know, and I, I spent 12 years as a legislator, and I know I did the best that I can to try to channel what the community looks like, cobble up these resources, and make some sort of decision. And then we led the charge. We didn't quite have as many people of color as we do now, but lead the charge to try to get things changed. It would have been really nice to have a document that I could present to the body and to the rest of the country and the state to say, here's what the impact of this piece of legislation, either if it's I'm putting it and I think it's good, or if someone else is proposing it and it's bad for us. So um, I'm going to leave it there because I know we want a few questions and answers, but that's essentially uh, what we're trying to do here this year. No, thank you, Jeff. Um, we do have some questions from the audience that I think will take us a little deeper into some of what we've already heard. Uh, let me start with this one. Given that it's International Women's Day, and my pack is the only Hmong women's pack in the country. How do we lift up women organizers and legislators? Um, Brett, thank you for the question. I think um, I, what makes my pack unique is that we do work at the intersection of gender, race, and immigration, and. Um, and because we work at that intersection, there are often times when even within our own cultural community, 
we are um, fighting up against the patriarchy, right? And um, so not only are we fighting against patriarchy, but we're also fighting against supremacy, white supremacy, and then xenophobia. And those are really harsh realities and harsh issues to have to grapple with all at the same time. Um, and I think that at times it's easier to talk about race because you can see other those not in your community as other, but when you look, when you have to look inside inside your community and then grapple with the issue of even within your own community, there's oppression and there's serious gender oppression. And so um, when the the person who asked the question about leadership, I think it's really important to recognize some really huge issues within the gender equity movement. One is pay equity. Women consistently get paid less. COVID-19 has really demonstrated and exacerbated how women get paid less, especially women of color, especially immigrant women. And so understanding and acknowledging that women should get pay equal or what their worth really is. Um, I know that I've spoken to a lot of individuals where they're like, we're paid what um, the, the, what how everyone else is being paid. But if everyone else is pay, being paid equally bad, that's not a really high bar, you know? So how do we set a different standard, a standard that's actually equitable? Um, so I just wanted to say that like one, pay equity for women. Two is um, that women don't have to actually, um, don't wait for a woman to have to actually talk to you about all of their accomplishments but actually recognize it without them talking about it. And for women, don't be ashamed about talking about it. Have some pride and um, you know, celebrate what you've achieved. I know that culturally and gender-wise, it's really hard for me to celebrate all the um, actually huge historical bills that I've pushed since 2009. Um, but in 2010, we pushed, when I the organization I worked with um, pushed the Domestic Violence Omnibus Bill and we led groundbreaking stalking legislation in the state of Minnesota um, with the organization that I worked with. So these are things that I'm learning for myself to break tradition and to break um, gender and social norms. And I, I would say that um, it helps when all of us see how we internalize these um, institutions that serve to oppress and isolate. Um, so one thing that my PAC does is we have the value of building collective power, realizing that together, when we pool our resources and we pool our social capital that we actually can have a bigger impact. So we try to build collective power and not just individual power. Um, the other piece is building collective leadership. So not one person's always the spokesperson for the organization. Um, everyone has a different leadership role. And I even see, um, you know, Voices for Racial Justice living out this value where they have co-directors. I know that everyone says it's hard to do and it is hard, right? trying to share leadership, trying to share power. But if we don't break our structural norms and these institutions that serve to oppress us by saying only one person can actually represent our community, no one person can actually represent our community. And good legislation like the racial equity, um, uh, what do you call, um, uh, not I just forgot the name of it. Impact note, impact note. Impact note. Like, you know, the fact that Jeff said that it was Jeff and you know, the former speaker, Tyson, working on it, that already goes to show you you can't do it by yourself. Not one body can pass it, right? You need two bodies and then you need the executive and you need a base of people pushing for it. And so um, good policy can't be done in isolation, but yet we consistently recognize individuals for policy achievements and not groups of people. And so that's one way to dismantle both white supremacy and also uh, gender inequity. Oh, thank you, Tommy. Uh, looks like, wow, time is really moving. Um, does anyone else want to add on to this question um, before, I think we have a few more minutes for the next one before we move to our closing. So if no one else has anything to add on to this, I'll move on to the next question. And then that'll, that'll end up moving us into closing. Okay, let me let me go to let me ask this one. Um, how do we institutionalize the work of racial equity and ensure 
that there is follow-up to the results. So I think everyone could say a little something about this one and then we can, we can move forward. But how do we institutionalize the work of racial equity and how are you doing that in your work? Well, let me just say this really quickly that I think that we um, have to have a, 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 some sort of understanding of what racial equity is. Um, and I think that that might mean different things to different people. And we might not always agree, but we shouldn't do that. Second thing I think is really important is that it should be led by black and brown people. I don't know. I mean, I just think that sometimes, um, and I love my allies that do this work and are well-intended and do it well, but I've had this conversation. It needs to look a lot like this screen here and we need uh, to really lead that. And then the last thing is we should not be afraid to not only hold the system, but uh, hold ourselves accountable um, for when we institute it to say. So I can tell you that, you know, some racial equity work I did four or five years ago put a lot of money in the system. Um, you know, one of the things that I really would have hoped that we have done is to go back to look to see how it worked. Now, the way that the subsequent legislatures have kind of pushed that money and homogenized it in, in the whole broader scheme, I don't particularly care for, and they know that. Um, um, so the Workforce Development Fund, I think, then becomes, it's hard to track, but I think that we need to kind of track that to see what, what has worked, what doesn't work. And then the last thing is, a lot evolved in the 12 years that I was in the legislature. So we also need to keep up with the time and the trend and don't kind of fall back on the way we've always done it. So that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. Here, here to that. I, I would say that also, I mean, I think there are organizations like that will say that they're, you know, that they care about black and brown folks and, and we don't, we don't really ask them like, what are they doing to like, to show their work in that. Um, I think that a lot of organizations that um, maybe lean more towards like, I, I would say like liberal tendencies or those kinds of things that folks are just like, of course we support racial equity and um, we're a great organization, but we don't really, it's like holding, holding ourselves accountable, absolutely, but also how do we hold these other organizations accountable? And I think what Jeff said is right, is like, we need to be leading these efforts and they need, we, our voices need to be centered around the decisions that are being made. And we need to be able to call people out when they're, when they're just saying, you know, there, there are so many times, I mean, daily, I think I have folks that will say that they know what's gonna be best for my community and yet they're not a member of my community. So I think that that is, um, it's really important. Sometimes I think we gotta be a little hard, you know, like we've gotta be a little tough and, and be able to just say that, um, that we we reject that, you know, and that that we're here and we're leaders in our own communities to to speak on our our behalf from our own experience. Okay, thank you. And let me just put um, read also. This is very important in the chat. Tom Hay said MMB the, the Minnesota Management and Budget. Uh, office or agency needs to hire qualified individuals. Absolutely, <laughs> couldn't let, couldn't escape without acknowledging that. And that's but I, but I, to, oh, oh, I was going to say me. that's in reference to the racial equity impact notes. That racial equity analysis requires expertise, and not anyone off the street can just be like, "I care about racial equity," and I can start doing some analysis right now. I think it's really important to acknowledge that people study this area and actually have knowledge in it. Thank you, Tommy. absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I would say that that's part of what the work is. And I know the governor of uh, both the last, this governor, last governor has been trying to focus on that, but that has to be part of the template. If you said, listen, I got a BA in this and an MA in that and a CPA and all the other things that come across your name. We also need to embed that question around racial equity and their experiences and weight that to that it makes it makes a difference if they don't. What will happen with that, and I'm sorry, I know we're closing, is that'll trickle down back to the folks that are thinking about. So the higher ed organizations and others will have to start to acknowledge that because their folks won't be getting jobs and they won't be trained very well if we embed that in the way in which we hire people. Awesome, awesome way to, absolutely. 
awesome way to conclude this. Uh, there were a lot more questions, but we just don't have time um, to get to them now. So let me pass it to Monica Hurtado. Thank you, everybody. Uh, again, it's uh, an amazing time uh, to share with you all. Uh, it's inspiring to see you all uh, doing the work for the Black and Brown communities liberation. And with that, the reflection is about how we can make this uh, policy work a tool for our liberation. And I think that's something that everybody can give a different answer. Uh, I think in the end, it's about the power we can build together. Ome said it really, really clear in one of her remarks, how through collective power, we are going to liberate ourselves. So that's something that uh, policy can be one way. And something that I would invite everybody to, to reflect about is why policy is so scary and so traumatizing and how that's by design. That's by design for making black and brown people not as engaged as we should be. Understanding that every decision that is made there impact our daily lives. So we should think about that and reverse that narrative. So we need to be uh, building that collective power in policy one way, and we need to do concrete and tangible things. And you all heard the amazing, amazing work that uh, uh, all our leaders are doing, and there's even more. Uh, so with that, I will just uh, close with saying thank you to you all. And I in, in the chat, you will uh, see links where you can follow the amazing work that Nevada is doing with the Page Amendment and similar uh, with uh, Tomei and, and the MIFPAC, Copal and Marco, uh, the work that they are doing too. And you will also see the uh, email of Jeff to follow on the equity impact notes. So with that. Thanks to the panelists and voices for their leadership. Just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiria, and you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show and all of our episodes on Spotify, Google Podcast, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also find our website, journalismofcolor.com, and um, that's where you can also find a transcript of this show. You can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. For now, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and mask up.